serious epidemiology. I am Dr. Haley Bannock, and I am very pleased to be co-hosting this episode, this podcast, with Matt Fox from Boston University. How are you doing, Matt? Well, I'm doing really well. I mean, it's it's fall here. I mean, it's by the time this airs, it'll be fall, but it feels like fall based on the weather that we're having this summer. You and I just spent about, what, about an hour and a half complaining about it before we started this recording? You know? Yeah, we, we like to complain about the weather a lot. I mean... It's it's really all we have to talk about aside from, you know, causal inference and the weather and COVID and COVID causal inference, COVID and the weather. Yeah, yep. it's, it's a real downer. But what's not a downer is the terrific episode we're going to be having today. Ooh, See that segue? See that right there? I'm getting really good at this podcasting stuff. You are. So today we're going to be talking about formal causal models. Um, So we are back in our modern epidemiology fourth edition season. And today we are on chapter three. Okay, listeners, please open up your textbooks to page 37, (laughs) where Haley will begin to read aloud. (laughs) Yes, a modern epidemiology audiobook. I like it. All right, authors, please, where is our audiobook? Okay, I have proposed this idea before. Who would be the voice if there was a modern epidemiology audio edition? Uh, Tim Lash? I think it would be James Earl Jones. <laughs> oh, you're thinking more broadly than the authors. Of the yeah, no, no, no. I think you need a uh, you need a voice to make it exciting. David Attenborough, if we're going into nature mm, documentaries. David Attenborough is an interesting choice. That could be fun. He sounds so distinguished always, you know, which is how I feel about modern epi. Consider the p-value in the wild. <laughs> See the way he preens while looking for a mate. I don't know. I, I could see it. It could, could work. It could, could work. Yeah. So chapter three, when you see the title, Formal Causal Models, it's a bit intimidating, you mm-hmm. know, just, just that title in and of itself. But I actually, as with most things in this book, it's very well written and well explained. So they so they go through four different causal models. In the chapter, they talk about what we call the potential outcomes or counterfactual model, graphical models, which usually we call DAGs, directed acyclic graphs. Those are graphical models. Then they talk about the sufficient component cause models, which some might be familiar with the Rothman causal pies or causal pie models. And finally are the structural equation models. I think this last category or perhaps, at least in my training, what is least familiar to most epidemiologists, but they do a nice job introducing the concept in the chapter. Again, another example of a case where I wish I had, you know, the third edition in front of me. And I'd love to know if that last part, the structural equations model was added in this edition or was that in the previous edition? I don't know, but it is certainly something that was not taught as part of my training, whereas the other three were. And it's interesting. So I don't recall reading about it. I I haven't gone through the third edition in this level of detail, but I did my graduate, my master's degree in a psychology adjacent program and structural equation modeling was very thoroughly covered in in those types of courses, but not so much in the epidemiology courses, which I think is a bit strange. I know Tyler Vanderweel has published several papers on the topic, but yeah, it hasn't really made it into epidemiology as much. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know why that is. My understanding is the structural equations model are simpler to understand and, and more straightforward with linear models. And so with much of what we do dealing with binary outcomes, maybe that's part of it. But I think you can use these models with binary outcomes. So I don't think that is the reason. But I'm, I'll be curious to see if it becomes more of a part of what we do going forward. Yeah, 
and I think it's very valuable for everyone to be introduced to the concept, whether or not you're going to use it, I guess is a different thing. Yep. Okay. So I have a question for you, Haley. Yes. My assumption is that you didn't learn counterfactuals, sufficient cause model or causal diagrams from this textbook, even in a previous version. Yes, that is correct. So um, one of the things when I was reading this was I was thinking to myself, is this a good textbook to be learning about these things for the first time? Or is it better as a deeper understanding of something that you will have already covered in your, maybe in your other courses? In other words, if you were learning about this, do you want to learn about it first and then read about it? Or do you want to read about it first and then learn about it? I think that it would be most helpful and I would have preferred to learn about it in a lecture from a professor who's giving some of those classic real life examples like, you know, you're entering the matrix and, you know, there's two possibilities or the movie Sliding Doors is another example where I've heard use, you know, people talk about that as a good example of counterfactuals. I think there's some real intuitiveness, intuition that you can use to help students understand these concepts and then assign the reading as a way to understand some more of the nitty gritty ideas. That would be my preference, I think. Yeah, I do have to say I use the sliding doors example when I teach. And every year I have at least one student who is upset with me for having spoiled the ending of that movie. It's like from 1995. I'm pretty sure spoiler alerts don't last forever. I feel like that's the case. Okay, so second question, I'm going to make the assumption that whoever is listening to this has either read the piece on potential outcomes or has heard of this before. And so this isn't a brand new concept to anyone, but that they're reading it to gain further insight, maybe studying for qualifying exams. One of the things that I found interesting in this, something that at least in my training didn't really come up and I sort of had to figure it out for myself was this distinction that they make not that everyone makes it, but they point out that some make a distinction between the potential outcomes model and the counterfactual outcome model. Yeah. And whether or not you use those interchangeably and whether or not it matters. And I was curious your take on that, whether you know you think this is something that is important for people to understand or whether this is a way that we talk about these models that doesn't really have any practical real life implications. So I confess that I used to use them interchangeably. I used to say potential outcomes and counterfactual models, you know, just depending on whichever one came out. And now in reading the chapter, I think they do a terrific job of clarifying why that's actually not entirely correct to use the two terms completely interchangeably. And I liked that they clarified the distinction between those two. So I think as with all things in epidemiology, we need to be very careful with our terminology. And this would be in included in that. So can you explain what the difference is? I'll try my best and, and please uh, correct me when I get things not entirely true. So the counterfactual model is this idea that if you set an individual's exposure to a particular level, they are going to have an outcome that you can observe. And the opposite or the other option would be if you set their exposure to a different level, they will have another outcome corresponding to that other level you've set them to. In real life, you can only observe one of those two options. So the option that you do not observe would be counterfactual. The difference with that concept and the potential outcomes concept is before you have set anyone's intervention to any level or before they've received 
either treatment, they could, in theory, receive either the first treatment or the second treatment. So in that regard, either of those are in the potential outcomes terminology. But once they've received one, the other one is counterfactual. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I guess my reaction is I struggle to see when this is going to matter. I mean, if the purpose of clear language is to effectively communicate, when am I ever going to be in a situation where it's really critical that you understand whether I'm talking about something that could happen in the future, and therefore either exposure or not exposure or whatever it is we're talking about could be assigned versus something that has already happened, and therefore one outcome is factual and the others are are counterfactual. How are we going to get ourselves into trouble by blurring the language there? I think it's a conceptual issue. We define counterfactuals as counter to the fact, counter to what you actually are able to observe. And it is not quite as clear to use the term potential outcomes because one of those outcomes is occurring. One of them is not a potential outcome, right? One of them is an actual outcome. And so it makes more sense to talk about actual and counterfactual when something has already been assigned versus potential outcomes as a category in theory before you've done any treatment assignment. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point. And I I certainly agree that there is, if you want to be very precise about the language, there is a right and a wrong answer. But I just struggled to see a case where using the term counterfactual when I really should have used potential outcomes is going to lead to a misunderstanding either for me personally, conceptually, or between you and I in trying to communicate something about causal relationships in the world. No, and I can't come up with a specific situation off the top of my head, but this conversation reminds me of the parallel with when I read in a paper, somebody talks about the relative risk or just uses RR, but let's say it's a a case control study. I know as an epidemiologist that they're most likely talking about an odds ratio. I think most likely is doing a lot of work in that sentence because I don't think it is necessarily true. In (laughs) fact, I think when somebody does a case control study and they write relative risk, I actually have concern. It's not clear to me that it is correct. And so there, I think it does matter. Okay, so there's my great example that I just came up with off the top of my head. But I'm saying in many journals, articles, sorry, abstracts that I read, I read the term relative risk. And automatically, I think to myself, I wonder which effect estimate they're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. And then you have to go in and read about the study design or read about how they sampled their outcomes, etc. To try to figure out what are they talking about when they just use the abbreviation RR. And so I think that there are instances where specific terminology really matters. And Mm -hmm. as a field, we should strive to be as precise as we can. It probably doesn't matter if they describe it well in the methods and they actually have done the right thing. Maybe it's just carelessness that they're using RR as an abbreviation or relative risk as a a term. But I think, you know, you could extend that to this counterfactual idea. Probably doesn't really matter whether you're talking counterfactual or potential outcomes. But I think it is important to clarify, to use the right terms so it's clear that there is some kind of distinction between those concepts. Okay, fair enough. So then in this chapter, they talk about the assumptions that go into this particular model. And and the three that we are most used to hearing about would be consistency, positivity, and exchangeability. So exchangeability, the sort of no confounding assumption, consistency. Okay, I, I struggle with how to concisely and clearly communicate consistency. I don't know if you have a quick way to do it. 
So again, I use consistency sometimes synonymously with a well-defined treatment. And so I usually think about it in my head as there is a specific way where you're setting exposure X to a specific level. But in the textbook, they use consistency differently than that. They use consistently to say that for an individual who receives exposure X, their actual outcome is equal to Y sub X. In other words, the outcome that would occur if I set your exposure equal to whatever Correct. is the same as what actually happens in the real world when I do set your exposure equal to that particular level of the intervention. And I mean, I think the reason why you think of it in terms of the well-defined intervention is because if you don't have a well-defined intervention, then you run the risk that the, the counterfactual outcome under that particular scenario will differ from what actually happens because the intervention is is different from the hypothetical intervention that you would do in your hypothetical study in the future. So I think those are concepts that are closely aligned, although I do think that they are not exactly identical. And I also think if I understand it correctly, you could have an intervention that is not perfectly well-defined that might not violate the consistency assumption that two different versions of the treatment, however you want to think of that, might still lead to the exact same outcome for every person. So if it's... Uh, surgical intervention, the actual surgeon delivering the intervention in some cases might not matter, in which case you have no violation of the consistency assumption. And in other cases, it might matter a lot, in which case you have a, a big violation of the consistency assumption. That's helpful to clarify. I think consistency for sure is the most difficult of the assumptions for me to, to wrap my head around because there's so many nuances to it, right? So it's in part, you have to have a well-defined intervention. It's in part related to what your actual outcome outcome observed is, but I struggle with this one a lot. Exchangeability, no one measured confounding. Sure, I can get that one. Positivity, you know, you need to have individuals in each cell of your data. Yeah, I get that one too. But this consistency one, I really struggle with. Okay. I mean, I do too, at least in terms of the nuance of it. But now go back to the positivity because we didn't define positivity. And what you just said was you need to have people in the cells of every, I guess would be level of your exposure and confounders or modifiers. Yeah. Is that actually the definition, though, of positivity? And the reason I ask this is I struggle with the difference between positivity in theory and positivity in practice, because I cannot estimate something in my data if I don't have people to represent that condition. But I can always, not always, but I can often switch to a parametric model where I essentially smooth over the fact that I don't have those people in my data set or something like that. Whereas there is also the theoretical positivity, where it isn't just that I don't have anyone in that particular cell. It's that for structural reasons, no one could be in that cell. I mean, I think the, the classic example of this is, is in like occupational exposures where once a person leaves the job, they are no longer ever going to be exposed to a particular chemical. It's just not something you come across in daily life. And so you run up to the situation where for structural reasons, they per you can never have somebody in a particular cell of your data set. Does it matter whether it's it's theoretical or actual? 
I don't, I'm not sure I like the terms theoretical or actual. I've heard it structural? broken down. I've heard it broken down in terms of structural positivity, yeah. whereas okay. you, you know, as you described, I think that is a very big problem mm-hmm. compared with random positivity violations where it is possible. There's a non-zero probability that someone could be in that cell. There just isn't anyone in that cell. So the, on page 37, the textbook says the treatment positivity requirement sometimes expressed by saying there is a positive probability, a non-zero chance of receiving any treatment for which an effect will be estimated. So probability, right? it it isn't that there actually have to be people to meet the consistency assumption. There has to be a non-zero probability that there would be somebody there. If there is nobody in that cell, then I can't estimate anything there without making some additional assumptions. But there can still be a causal effect there that I just can't estimate. And I think that's for, again, for reasons of can we estimate a causal effect. In order to do that, we need to meet these assumptions. I think there are ways around the zero cell case where there is still a a non-zero probability of being in that cell. Whereas if there is a zero probability that anyone ends up in that cell, there is no causal effect for structural reasons, I think. Right. So when you talk about violations of positivity, they're really referring to structural violations of positivity. I think so. So if you have a random occurrence or, you know, a small data set, let's say, or or whatever the case may be, where you don't have an individual in a cell or several cells, just because that in theory should not interfere with your ability to make causal inferences. I think that's right. So can I back up the statement that you read? Because it's the the sentence before what you read that actually had me so puzzled when I read it. The part that I was interested in starts with some causal modeling methods attempt to avoid dealing with purely hypothetical potential outcomes by imposing a treatment positivity requirement, sometimes expressed by saying there is a positive probability, non-zero chance of receiving any treatment for which an effect will be estimated. This condition is much stronger than the treatment possibility. For example, in the above example, it was physically possible to administer a 30 milligrams per deciliter dose, but was simply not allowed in the study. While positivity is assumed by several important causal modeling techniques, it is insufficient to avoid all problems of hypothetical treatments and outcomes. So maybe this actually wasn't in the exact place you were reading, but it's close enough. I interpreted this to mean that not all causal modeling approaches would assume positivity. Some causal modeling methods attempt to avoid dealing with purely hypothetical potential outcomes by imposing a treatment positivity requirement. I guess I read that caveat, that some wording, I read it differently than you did. um, Because I read it to mean that they've gone in the text and they've described this idea of potential outcomes Mm -hmm. and, you know, as a philosophical theoretical concept. And now they're trying to ground it. They're trying to bring that concept of potential outcomes into the real world by talking about positivity. Because you can, in theory, come up with all sorts of crazy potential outcomes ideas. They're just ideas. They're theories. And then when you actually have to assign treatments and measure outcomes, et cetera, you know, you have to be able to do that in real life. It has to be a a measurable outcome in order to make sure that you don't violate positivity. Why were you so perturbed by that sentence? Well, I was, I guess I was perturbed because I originally interpreted it to mean that you don't actually need the positivity assumption 
assumption that oh. we made some that, but I think your interpretation is more correct. And in fact, it seems to be making the distinction that structural positivity is one way of defining the positivity assumption versus the random positivity would be a much stronger assumption. They say in this example, it was physically possible to administer a particular dose of a drug. It just didn't occur in the trial. Well, now I, I guess I don't even know because is that saying there was a non-zero probability in theory or in practice? The trial didn't allow this particular dose. In practice, in practice, right? Because they were giving, I think, a dose of 10 and a dose of 20 or mm -hmm. zero and 20. Yeah, those um, were the two, two dosings of a particular drug in a hypothetical example of a trial. Right, so let's say it wasn't harmful to patients or whatnot, they could have given a dose of 30, but the investigators decided, you know, for whatever reason or reasons, you know, we're not going to give 30. It is possible to load up a syringe and give someone a dose of 30. And so which, which, which version of positivity would that violate? Random or structural? That would still be structural because it's not random. It was a choice of the study investigators to not assign that at any level in their study. That's so interesting because you're right. I mean, but that doesn't get to the hypothetical nature, right? Because hypothetically, Absolutely. somebody could it's receive different. it. It's different. Yeah, it's different than the hypothetical nature. So it feels to me like we're getting at three different things. There's the structural because it could never happen. There's right. the structural because we set it up that way. And then there is random. It just didn't occur by chance. Yeah, I, I don't object to having those three categories. I think that for the most part, those first two types of structural are lumped together. But it, you know, if you're going to parse it apart and really pick it apart, there's probably some type of difference between those two. Whether it matters, probably not. But you know, I think there is a difference between what you're describing as two different options for structural positivity. So the other assumption that's in here that I think we don't really talk about is the SUPA assumption. Can you explain what the sutva assumption is? So I usually call it sattva. Sutva, um, sattva, gift, gif, potato, potato. It's all kind of, we, I understood what you were saying. So we'll, we'll call it sutva. So sutva sattva is the stable unit treatment value assumption. And this actually has two it assumptions. It blows off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. That's why we have to figure out if it's sutva or sattva, because nobody can remember what the, what it stands for. So basically in this assumption, there's the first, which is this idea of no interference. So for an individual's potential outcome, it can only depend on the exposure that they received and not on the exposure or treatment of any other individual. So a good example of this would be taking a statin for cholesterol. An individual's risk of having a heart attack can depend on whether or not they take a statin, but it cannot depend on whether or not someone else in the trial was assigned to take a statin. And that makes sense, right? Of course, your risk of having a heart attack has nothing to do with somebody else taking a statin. It only has to do with you taking a statin. So this would be a situation in which this assumption is not violated. The concept of this in infectious diseases, I think gets very murky and very complicated, but on a simple level, sort of this interference idea makes some sense to me. What do you think, Matt? Well, so the infectious disease example, where I think this gets violated all the time, would be if I take treatment for tuberculosis, that can affect your outcome of getting tuberculosis. Because right, if I'm treated, I don't have tuberculosis, I don't pass it on. So that would be a, a violation, and therefore it becomes difficult to estimate the effect. But we do this all the time, right? I mean, vaccine effectiveness studies, we do estimate the vaccine effectiveness supposedly for an individual. I mean, we do think about the interference assumptions, but it 
feels to me like we violate that in vaccine effectiveness studies somewhat regularly, and we don't worry about it too much. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I guess partly because maybe we don't violate it too much. So you think about the COVID trials. What are the chances when we were conducting the vaccine trials? What are the chances that for any two people in the trial, one person getting the vaccine is affecting another person getting COVID? In theory could, but the proportion of people in the trial relative to the population is probably very small and presumably therefore it, it doesn't likely violate it in any real important way. But if you're doing vaccine effectiveness of community-wide rollout of a vaccine, then I would think you would. It is violated. You want it to be violated. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. And you think, you know, about long-term care facilities, like living through this pandemic is actually a perfect example, looking at these vaccine trials of how you wish for this no interference assumption to be violated. But yep. does that mean that those are not causal effects? No, no, no. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's, is this model does not account for the causal effects. At least that's my understanding of it. So it's not that those are not, we could very clearly define a model in which those were effects, but it doesn't work here. That's interesting. I think I'd like to follow up with an infectious disease epi person. So if you're listening. Wait, hang on. Am I not an infectious (laughs) disease epi person? Scratch that. I I would like to follow up with somebody Mm -hmm. who does vaccine trials because I am co-hosting this podcast with a preeminent infectious disease epidemiologist, but whose main focus is not vaccine trials. Very good recovery there. Very good. (laughs) Well done. So the other part of Sattva Sutva, the other assumption that is included is that there is no ambiguity in how you apply the exposures to the individuals in the study. Or if there is some level of ambiguity, it does not give rise to different outcomes. So I get very confused with this assumption because isn't that the consistency assumption? Why is this assumption part of sattva sutva when it's already one of the main assumptions of making causal inferences? Yeah, it's a good Good question. I mean, I, the way I see it, Isutva is just saying you have these two assumptions both met, that there is no consistency violation and there is no effect of my, you know, another unit's treatment on my outcome. Why they're put together, I don't totally get, but I suspect there is a good reason for it, but I, that's beyond me. I'm with you. And if you already have consistency, you don't need this multiple versions of treatment assumption as part of your setba assumption. You know? true, true, and I would agree with that statement, except that we don't usually talk about the other half of SUTFA, which is the no interference condition. I, I guess what we're sort of doing in a lot of ways by ignoring it is just assuming that it's met. I think there's so many cases that it is clearly being met. It's obviously biologically impossible for me taking a statin to be influencing your risk of a heart attack, right? So I think in many times, it's just a given that this is this is happening. But there probably are situations where it's being overlooked, and maybe it shouldn't be. Many social exposures, for example, I think it would be difficult to claim that you are in a situation of interference. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so let me read a statement to you then that they talk about these various assumptions. And then they say, the strengths of the above assumptions has been taken as a weakness of the potential outcomes model. It's been argued, however, that such strong assumptions are inescapable if one wishes to quantify causal effects and are merely hidden by traditional methods that fail to make them explicit. So Haley, do you think that the assumptions are the strength 
of the potential outcomes model or the weakness of the potential outcomes model? That's an interesting question. So what I view as one of the most important contributions of the potential outcomes model, in my opinion, is that it makes these assumptions very explicit. These things you have to think through, you have to discuss them. And I think that's very important. So I, I do think it is a strength. I think sometimes it's a weakness that it's easy to wiggle around them and it's easy to massage a particular situation to fit within the assumptions because you wish it to be so or you want it to be so for your study or whatever you're working on. So I think it can kind of be viewed from both perspectives, but overall, I appreciate these assumptions as a strength because it helps us to talk about the important issues when making causal effect. Yeah, to me, it's a strength. The assumptions are there and therefore by being explicit about them, we are making it clear what is necessary to go from what we observe in the real world to what the underlying true causal effects are. And being explicit about them is different from, are they important? Do they exist? To me, the fact that they exist is not a strength or a weakness. It is just a fact of the model. And you know, to me, the strength is that it, using the model forces us to be explicit about what the assumptions are that we're using to go from association to causation. To me, that's really valuable. I agree. I agree completely. And the fact that, you know, you and I spent a few minutes a little while ago discussing positivity as a, is there actually no one there or is it not possible to have one there? Or is that a choice of the study investigators? I think these are important questions to talk through. And without these assumptions, I think that would be overlooked. So I think they are a strength. All right. So the last point I want to emphasize from this model, they say, and I just thought this was really interesting. One way to summarize the scope of potential outcomes models is that they represent the limit of what one could learn about individual causes and effects from doing only perfect crossover trials with no knowledge of mechanisms of action. And, you know, I thought that was a, a really nice insight and way to summarize the potential outcomes model's usefulness. It's interesting to me that it sort of has this emphasis at the end on perfect crossover trial with no knowledge of the mechanisms, because the potential outcomes model doesn't really get at mechanisms, right? It just gets at, if I change X, does Y change? It's yeah. not about Y. Correct. And I had to actually sit and think about this for a little while because it wasn't intuitive to me, this, this concept of doing perfect crossover trials as the sort of parallel for the potential outcomes model. But upon thinking of it, of course it makes sense, right? Because exactly like you say, in a crossover trial, you could change someone's exposure, observe their outcome, and then wait two weeks, give them the other exposure and observe an outcome. And that's exactly what you would like to do in a potential outcomes model. We just usually don't have the luxury of doing perfect crossover trials. Yeah. And in most cases, for most things, a perfect crossover trial can't actually be done because right. the exposure affects the outcomes of the future. So, or the outcomes are permanent or things like that. So you can't, you, you often can't do them. So that's presumably why we don't do them more often. Right, but of course. But I think that that also, that sentence highlights the importance of clarifying counterfactual from potential outcomes, mm -hmm. right? Because when you are talking about potential outcomes, you can talk about, let's say you have an exposure with four levels and you could do a crossover trial. You could do a series of set exposure to one, 
see what outcome one is, set exposure to two, see what outcome two is, etc. Those would all be potential outcomes. In any individual trial, all trial that you're doing, when you're setting your exposure to one and observing what the outcome is, all of the other options are counterfactual at that point. And so you can really clearly with this framework of crossover trials, see the difference between counterfactual and potential outcomes, which, you know, we talked about earlier on. Yep. All right. So we spent most of our time talking about the potential outcomes model. And I think that is because the other two parts of the chapter deal with causal diagrams and with sufficient causes, which are much harder to talk about in a podcast. But I thought there are a few things we might want to just highlight. So the section on graphical models is focused mainly, I would say, on DAGs. You know, there are other forms of graphical models like SWIGs and things like that, but I'm, I'm not there yet in my ability to understand SWIGs. Maybe we'll have somebody on somebody who can SWIG. Yeah, that would be a good idea. For us. Teach us that's wigs. <laughs> But I, there were a couple of insights, a little bit of insights for those who already know about causal diagrams that I thought were kind of useful in this chapter. And I'm sure it's not that they are unique to this chapter so much as they're just sort of things I didn't really think about. The first is they categorize the different ways that three variables can be related into colliders, mediators, and forks, which is just sort of not something I hadn't really paid attention to. There are a limited number of ways that you can draw the arrows between any three variables. So if you have X, Y, and Z, you can have an arrow from X to Y and Y to Z. So that's your mediator structure. You can have a, uh, an arrow from X to Y and uh, an arrow from Z to Y, in which case Y is your collider. The arrows collide at Y. And then you can have the fork where you have an arrow from Y to X and Y to Z. So that's essentially your confounder type diagram. Y is a common cause of X and Z. So and I had never heard of this word fork before. Had you heard of forks before? No, but I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? You have a, a point at which you have two times of the fork coming off. or Okay, so let me back up then and say the other thing that I thought was really interesting is the electricity analogy. Yes. Which I really like. So if you think of a, of a DAG as being an electric circuit board, then essentially the electricity can flow along the arrows. And yep. that electricity is the information that, that leads to, say, a causal structures leading to confounding or colliders or whatever it is. If you condition on a variable, you adjust for a variable, you're essentially opening up the, the circuit. You're breaking the circuit. And so information can no longer flow and therefore you can't have confounding through those variables that you broke in the, the flow of electricity at. So the fork in this case would be a situation where the electricity flowing from a particular variable that forks off in two different directions. So the, like the variable becomes off. a common cause of those other two variables. Yeah, I, now talking through it with you, I am understanding it better. I just, there are so many terms for so many things. I really didn't think we needed to add fork to it. Mm. I think there, you know, we could have used the word common cause or confounder or some mediator is a term that we all have mostly heard of before. We didn't really need to add four into the mix. But I am understanding what you are describing as yeah. why they used it that way. I just thought it was interesting, you know, sort of interesting to recognize that, that there are a limited number of ways that you can have arrows between three variables. And knowing that is really helpful in terms of thinking through the implication. Yes. And related to that point is they talk about faithfulness and whether your DAG is faithful to what is real life, I think is, is important. And in DAG or causal diagrams, having an arrow between two variables means something. It means that your X 
you have an arrow into your Y, there is an association between X and Y. If you omit that arrow, you're also saying something important. And you're saying by leaving out that arrow that there is no relationship, there is no association between your X and your Y. Leaving out an arrow is as important as putting in an arrow when you're drawing causal diagrams. And I think that that's an important reminder to be careful when you are omitting things or omitting arrows from your diagram, because it can have implications for determining if a variable is a collider or a fork or a common cause, et cetera, when you're drawing out those diagrams. So I think there are a lot of useful insights that we can get from causal diagrams. We don't want to spend a lot of time talking about them because it doesn't make for great podcasting commentary. But one last thing that they do note that I just think is worth emphasizing, it's something that I'm sure our, our listeners already know, but that is something that I think people struggle with when they first come across causal diagrams is that conditioning on a variable or a set of variables may open some paths between variables and close others. So conditioning on a collider opens up pathway between the two parents. A Collider, you know, people will often say that variable is a collider. A variable itself is never a collider. It's always a variable in relation to a path. And a variable can be on multiple paths at the same time. And therefore, it can, adjusting for one variable, can open some paths and close others. And I, I just think that's a useful insight to keep in mind when you're thinking about causal diagrams. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the same is true of a confounder. A variable in and of itself is just a variable, but it can be a confounder of the relationship between your exposure and your outcome, or it may not be a confounder, you know, same with a collider. So when you're talking about confounders or colliders, you need to be very explicit in a confounder of the relationship between exposure and your outcome or a collider on the pathway between two variables, whatever you're, you're trying to, to describe. So one of the things that I've always struggled with with causal diagrams is how hard it is slash impossible to demonstrate interaction with causal diagrams and how there's no easy way to, to show effect modification on a causal diagram. And then on page 43 of the textbook, they talk about you can represent synergism in a causal diagram by including the product variable. They say XG as this example, where you're having, you're creating a product term of X and G as two independent variables. So I have never done this. I've never seen other people do it. Have you seen that before? And why don't we do that more? No. So I've never seen this before. I wrote this, I copied this down too, because because I, the actual, what I wrote above it was, this is news to me. Um, <laughs> you know, so this, this is in the, it's actually in the last section of the, of the textbook on the sufficient cause model, the causal right, pi yeah. model, but it's, it's, page 43. To, it's talking about this idea of synergism, which I think is represented for me anyway, is represented much better by the sufficient cause model where you're drawing out the relationships between variables within a particular mechanism for an outcome. You know, they talk about the fact that the sufficient cause model is much more of a, an effects of causes model rather than a causes of an effects model. It focuses on the effect. And as you say, they talk about this idea of synergism, that if you have two variables, X and G, and you will not get the outcome Y unless you have both X and G. So if you have X alone or G alone or neither, you won't get the outcome. You have causal synergism, and you could represent that in a causal diagram as a variable that is the multiplication of those two variables. So my question now becomes, if that is the case, if I'm going to represent two variables with one node, node presumably I'm then not going to have X and G in my graph. So based on what you just described, you said you will have your outcome if you have only X and G, not just X, not just G, or not neither, obviously. Could you include those in a DAG? You would have an X 
but it would not have an arrow to Y. You could have a G, but it would not have an arrow to Y. But then you have XG, and that would have an arrow to Y. And the individual X would have an arrow into XG, and the individual G would have an arrow into XG. Oh, that's interesting. That that actually would solve the, the problem that I was just trying to figure out, which is that there are presumably different causes of X and G. So just having a variable that is XG wouldn't make a lot of sense to me. But you're right, X and G, that XG is logically a function of X and G. Right. But then is there really no arrow from X to Y and from G to Y? Well, that's what you just said, right? Yeah, And, and that's how they describe it yeah. in the textbook, is that if this is true 100% synergism, then I, I don't think so. I would yeah. say that, you know, coming back to that faithfulness discussion, there would be no arrow from X to Y in this example, because you only have the outcome occurring when you have both, well, when you have the product of X and G. Yeah. So I don't know, I just, I, I've never, I've never seen that. And it's been something that I've always wondered why there's no easy way or no better way to describe interaction in DAG format until, you know, I just read it now. I, I We need to think about it some more. And I, I would love to see an example of, of where this has been done. Because so, it's so to me, the reason why it doesn't, it's not going to work very well is because this represent the, the scenario you just described is very specific. A scenario in which all causation is synergism. I, I don't know how often that happens, but let's say we had a different scenario where it, under the sufficient cause model, the causal pi model, you have a, a causal pi with X and G, and you also have a causal pi with just X. Because DAGs represent populations, there could be some people in the population who get the outcome only because they had X. And there are other people who get the outcome because they had X and G, but there's nobody who gets it because they had just G, let's say. Then could I also, could I have an arrow from XG to Y and an arrow from X to Y in that case? Yeah, I think that that's actually exactly how you would draw out the causal scenario that you just described to us. So I, I, my hunch is then the reason why we don't use this that often is because it would be so complicated. The interactions between variables, there's probably a ton of interactions between variables in your graph and figuring them all out would be incredibly complicated and, and probably wouldn't add much to your understanding of a particular problem or how to analyze your data. But I could be wrong about that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a criticism of DAGs in general, is that sometimes we have to simplify them to a degree where you have to ask yourself, is this useful? Because most real life scenarios are so complicated with so many variables affecting your exposure and outcome and the relationship of interest that you have to ask yourself, is this the way I want this to be drawn? Because it's easiest for me to model and practically, you know, collect variables? Or is this the true real life DAG representing the causal effect that I'm interested in? I, I agree with everything you just said, but I, I was actually going in the opposite direction, which is to say, I think adding the complexity would, would not be useful in this case, because it wouldn't likely make any difference to the way that you analyze your data. You would just be putting together a graphical representation of the interactions that you think are there, but it wouldn't ultimately change you know, how you think about confounder control or potentially conditioning on colliders. I mean, you could, you could so come up I with a scenario know. where it would, but I think because it's probably rare. in the scenario that we described where you have a node that's for X, a node that's for G. Both of those have individual arrows to go into an XG, the product of those two. And then your outcome, that XG is actually a collider. 
I'd, ha- I'd have to think of a, a very particular scenario, but I think there could be problematic. It's a really interesting point. I suspect it wouldn't be problematic, though, because you wouldn't control for XG and not X and G, such that conditioning on XG doesn't cause any bias. Well, it really depends on what the whole scenario you're discussing is, right? Because if you have an unmeasured common cause of your XG and your Y, an unmeasured confounder, I don't know, it, it's really hard to talk about this in hypothetical terms. No, but, it is, but, but it, it absolutely is. I agree with you. But I, I just think the two very the variables for which this is a collider are the two variables you would also be adjusting for. You, It's not like you haven't measured X and G. You have measured them. You're just sort of setting up your, your DAG in a different way to represent that. You would never adjust for XG and not adjust for X and G, such that I think any problem you would create theoretically would have disappeared. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's an interesting point. Yeah, we'd we'd have to probably sit and and diagram it out. So I I think it probably, in most cases, is just going to add complexity that we don't need. Yeah, that's true. It will add complexity, but I think you could also make the same argument that we just made about the talking about the assumptions of causal inference is that, yes, it adds complexity. Is there value to it? Yes, I think there is value to it. So I think potentially there might be some value to us moving towards including interaction terms in DAG, even though it's not common, but it, it would make things more complex for sure. The good news is that we will find out one way or the another. 10 years from now, when we have the reunion podcast episode, we will look back and see which one of us was right. Aren't we still going to be doing this in 10 years? Sorry, when we have the reunion podcast in 30 years. Okay, fine. Yeah. yeah, fine. Okay, so I, I think we're reaching our time, which I will say Matt was right. We had no problem talking about uh, the, the concepts in this chapter, and we could have kept going as Matt is usually right on these topics. So just to, to wrap up, thanks for joining us on this discussion on uh, formal causal models. I'm very excited to say that in our next episode, we are going to continue to discuss chapters two and three, and we are going to have an expert guest, Dr. Jay Kaufman of McGill University. University joining us to have a casual conversation about causal modeling, uh, causal inference. And so uh, we hope that you uh, look out for that next episode when we release it. And just to give you one final reminder, for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June next year in Chicago. 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 It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one as well. So just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We appreciate you listening and look out for our next episode coming.